I am the nicest zombie you've ever met. I am just walking around with a customer service smile, trying to make everyone feel super just like ease, comfort, harmony, no conflict here, but also no aliveness, no electricity, no excitement. Getting Discomfortable with Nonviolent Communication. About a year ago, I listened to an audiobook called Nonviolent Communication by a man named Marshall Rosenberg. He has this deep, slow, velvety baritone voice, not unlike Sam Elliott's narration from the film The Big Lebowski. It's just a very soothing, very warm, very inviting timber that invites you into the world of non-violently communicating. Of course, the definition of violence in Marshall Rosenberg's conception of non-violent communication is a very broad definition. It's any kind of communication that can lead to misunderstanding or conflict or manipulation or any situation where one party is trying to dominate the other. Quote-unquote violent communication is the way most of us communicate with each other on a day-to-day basis. So Marshall has put together this very simple, very clear system for communicating that is based on empathy and distilling everything down to our most basic human needs so that we can really get to the heart of what it is that we want or what the person or people we are talking to want. After having finished Gandhi's autobiography, all about nonviolent resistance, the title of nonviolent communication just sort of caught my eye right away, and I wanted to read it. And of course, there is some influence between Gandhi and Marshall Rosenberg. But of all the self-help books I've read, and I'm constantly reading self-help books, nonviolent communication completely resonated with what I already believed. Like as I was listening to it, I just was constantly nodding along saying, yes, 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 exactly. Though I couldn't personally have actually put together all the ideas in the book, it was sort of like I already intuitively was going down that path anyway. So it just, it, it resonated with me <laughs> to use some of the language that you hear often among nonviolent communicators. A year later, I have just completed a nine-day international intensive training in nonviolent communication on an island outside of Stockholm, Sweden. So I have been immersed in nonviolent communication for the last like 10 days And I'm still no expert, but I figured if there was ever a time when I was going to be ready to do an episode about nonviolent communication, that time would be now. So take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. I'm going to try to explain it as best as I can, but I'm sure I will do an imperfect job of it. But if you're intrigued, then I would highly recommend that you go out and listen to the audiobook of nonviolent communication for yourself so that you can hear Marshall's syrupy baritone voice explaining the concepts directly. 
one of the very first steps of nonviolent communication is to separate observation from judgment or interpretation or analysis or evaluation. Essentially, it's to separate what is actually the facts of the situation from all of the stories and embellishments that our brain adds on because of our culture or our ideologies. In nonviolent communication, Marshall urges us to look at the facts of the situation in the most objective way possible. Basically, you want to distill whatever is happening down to the most basic observable facts, the things that you can actually see and hear, and that you and the people you are interacting with can all completely agree on. This is actually a lot more difficult than you think. One of the trainers I was working with last week likened it to more of a spectrum, that there is sort of a gradient between observation and judgment. And you, you, you want to be able to see where any given belief falls on that spectrum. Some beliefs will be very close to observable facts, and other beliefs will be tinged with certain embellishments or stories or ideas that you have added, that you have, that you have interpreted. And the important thing to stress here is that making judgments or interpretations or evaluations of situations is not a bad thing. In fact, nonviolent communication completely does away with the whole concept of good and bad. Morality, according to Rosenberg, is one of the biggest causes of violent communication. And this is, to me, one of the best parts of nonviolent communication. Getting rid of good and bad, getting rid of dogma, ideology, morality, or at very least, always seeing what is dogma, ideology, and morality is the key to allowing us to communicate with people who have different judgments, ideologies, dogmas, and moralities in a way that doesn't generate conflict. When you start to recognize the distinction between observation and interpretation, it allows you to communicate very clearly what it is that you actually observed and what it is that you are then judging about that situation based on your own conditioning. And by framing your judgments as just that, judgments, it allows there to be a lot more dialogue around whether or not those judgments are actually true. By labeling something an interpretation or a judgment or an ideology, it becomes a little bit suspect. It becomes debatable. And that makes it inherently less shaming. Of course, judging and interpreting things is also super useful. In fact, according to Brené Brown, our brains are actually wired to create these kinds of stories. They help us understand our environment. Our brain actually rewards us when we can create some kind of interpretation of events. It means that we are creating neural connections that are going to make it simpler for us to understand the world, simpler for us to function in the world. This certain stimulus now has a story that equals a certain response that we believe will keep us safe or alive or happy. So it's not about getting rid of these interpretations because, of course, that's impossible. 
But when we can see that we are interpreting, when we can see that our brain has created a shortcut, it helps us to recognize that it may not actually be true. It may be serving us, but it may not actually be true. And that leaves so much more room for us to communicate with people who have a completely different story in their head, who have their own shortcuts that are helping them in some way, but because they are different than ours, there's an inherent potential for us to get into conflict with them when we're trying to communicate or discuss a specific encounter that we both interpret differently. A perfect example of interpretation came in episode 48 when I was at Wisdom 2.0. You may recall I went into the washroom and the toilet seat was covered in liquid. And I interpreted that to mean that someone had peed all over the seat. Of course, a few minutes later, I discovered that it was just the way the toilet flushes. It splatters water every time the auto flusher goes off. The observation is there is liquid on the seat. That is true. That is objectively observable. Everybody who looked at the toilet could say, yes, there is some kind of liquid on the seat. The interpretation or judgment or analysis or evaluation was that it was urine, and therefore someone had peed on the seat, and therefore they had then not had the courtesy to clean the seat afterwards. So that was a whole package of judgment that turned out was not actually true. And had I actually seen the previous person come out of the stall, I would have attached all of those judgments to that person. And I would have said, this is a bad person. And I might have treated them that way. I might have gone up to them and accused them of all sorts of irresponsible, unconscientious things. And that right there is a perfect example of how communication can so quickly turn, quote-unquote, violent, or at least erupt into conflict when you don't separate between pure observation and interpretation. If I was practicing nonviolent communication in that moment, I might go up to the person and start off by saying, hey, when you left the washroom stall, there was some kind of liquid on the seat. Can you tell me what that was? Because I'm interpreting that it was urine and that you just sort of carelessly peed all over the seat. But I recognize that I don't have all the facts. So can you clarify? That would, of course, be the weirdest, most awkward conversation ever. Nonetheless, this is just an example of the difference between observation and interpretation. But that's really just the tip of the nonviolent communication iceberg, or NVC, as most people call it. The main purpose of NVC is connection. We are social animals, after all. So Marshall saw that the main purpose of actually communicating with each other should be fostering connection. A feeling of connection is one of the greatest feelings that we have as a social species. It is the glue that holds us together. It is one of the biggest sources of well-being in our lives. So it makes sense that the purpose of all of our intercommunication with each other should be about getting closer to each other, about understanding each other better, about seeing each other, about connecting. And perhaps not surprisingly, Marshall sees the root of connection as 
empathy. Empathy is, after all, the process by which we mirror for each other what we're each going through, what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, or as they say in NVC communities, what is alive in us in that moment. It's actually been shown that we have these mirror neurons in our brain. They are literally specifically designed by evolution for us to feel the emotions that we think we are seeing in another human. And it's surprisingly universal. Though we are all unique and special individuals of our own, each with our own culture and conditioning, ultimately we really are kind of just the same instrument. And in NVC practice groups, we are constantly doing role plays where I might play someone's father so that they can practice a nonviolent communication with him. And it's amazing how quickly you can be role playing as someone's father and you start to feel the exact emotions that that person might be feeling. It's almost like an external form of meditation or mindfulness. When I'm practicing mindfulness, I'm basically just paying attention to the feelings, thoughts, and sensations that are arising in me in any given moment. And when I'm practicing empathy, I'm kind of just opening up the field of that mindfulness to include another person. I am then trying to see what thoughts, feelings, and sensations appear to be coming up in them based on what they're saying and based on their body language. And it's really surprisingly easy and universal to figure out what emotions someone is going through. In NVC, you're always encouraged to approach empathy as a guess. Of course, we're not really inside that person's head. We can't say for sure what they're going through. And to assume that we can is kind of demeaning. It, it, it seems to put us above them by just a couple steps on the fictional hierarchy of human value. You are feeling this. You are feeling that. It makes us sound superior, like we know more about them than they do. So it's always about approaching it very gently and, and, and giving them the space to try to figure it out for themselves as well. You can even outright ask the person, hey, do you want me to give you some empathy? Or sometimes they'll say in NVC, would you like me to reflect that back to you? The idea is that by empathizing with someone, you are building your connection to them. You are also encouraged to then express to that person the impact that their feelings have on you in the hopes that they will then start to empathize, thus creating their connection to you. So empathy is kind of like a two-way street of connection. When I empathize with you, I feel like I'm connecting to you. And when you empathize with me, you feel like you are connecting with me. So it's kind of this give and take in order to build a connection between the two of us. However, building connection is not enough. Sometimes you need to go further because there are problems or situations that need to be addressed beyond just connecting with someone. So if we go back to our ridiculous situation of confronting someone about a wet toilet seat, First, you would go to them with your observations, separated from your judgments, 
And then the second step would be to create a connection between the two of you. So I might say, oh, you know, I'm really getting the impression that this is quite embarrassing for you. I can understand that. That that makes perfect sense. Maybe um, you are feeling kind of attacked as well. And this, this, this confrontation is, is really unpleasant or scary. Is that right? I could offer this person some, some guesses, allowing them room to guide the conversation until it feels like we've really gotten to exactly how they're feeling about me confronting them about this toilet seat thing. And then I might do some honest expressing of my own about how nervous and uncomfortable I feel about actually bringing it up. And that would hopefully create some empathy on their side. And once I feel like, you know, we have this empathy, that we are connected, that is when we can go deeper and actually figure out the basic human needs behind the issue. Marshall Rosenberg's conception is that every conflict is based on an unmet basic human need. The idea is that there are these universal human needs that we all have, and they are all the same. It starts with basic needs like food and water and shelter, you know, like basic survival needs. But then it gets higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs into things like a need for connection, a need for love, a need for belonging, and other more spiritual needs like a need for meaning or a need for purpose. People who practice NVC often carry around entire sheets of paper that list a ton of different feelings that they can then use for guessing, for empathy, and then a bunch of different needs. These needs aren't exactly like hard and fast truths. In fact, there is often debate among people who practice NVC about what exactly is a need and what isn't quite a universal need. But I don't think it really matters about whether or not a specific need is perfectly universally true for everyone. It's more about looking beneath a specific situation to figure out what is really going on below the surface. The idea behind these needs that I find so interesting is that they're never tied to a specific event. They're never about one specific person or one specific place or one specific point in time. So, for example, my need for safety. My need for safety is universal and it, it, is, it, it spans my entire life. And the way I try to meet that need throughout my life is with all these different strategies, as they call them. When you separate a basic need away from a specific situation, you start to recognize that that situation is just one strategy towards a need. It allows you to see that there may be other ways to meet that need aside from the approach that you are currently taking. So if we go back to the example of the wet toilet seat, Perhaps the needs for me that were not met in that experience might be a need for fairness. You know, I want someone to leave the toilet seat as clean as I would leave it. It might also not meet my need for dignity. I feel like I was not respected by the last user of that toilet. It also probably doesn't meet my need for comfort. And there's probably other needs, like a need for cleanliness or maybe a need for safety. You know, I I don't want to feel like I might pick up some germs by sitting on that toilet seat. 
So by expressing the needs that I think were not met out loud to this person in this situation, we can very quickly determine where I have mixed up pure observation with interpretation. When I say that my need for fairness isn't met, the person might say, well, actually, I didn't make the toilet seat wet. The toilet made itself wet. And if I were to lean over and clean the toilet, when I stand back up, the auto flusher will sense that I have moved and it will flush again and it will get the toilet seat wet all over again. So when I get that explanation, I discover that my need for fairness isn't actually being impacted by another human, nor is my need for dignity, my need for comfort, my need for cleanliness. So when I understand what is happening from their perspective, I discover that my needs were based on a faulty interpretation. My need for fairness was based on the thought that they had peed on the seat and that they had left it like that, like they had a choice, which they didn't. That also kind of gets rid of my interpretation that my need for dignity wasn't met. And while my need for comfort is accurately not met, it's not anyone's fault. And in terms of my need for cleanliness or my need for uh, safety, it's just water on the seat. So I don't really have to be worried about some kind of urine-based contaminant. An interesting note about the connection between needs and feelings is that when your needs are met, it creates positive feelings. And when your needs are not met, it creates negative feelings. But because NVC doesn't really use morality or good and bad, positive and negative has a kind of connotation of, of right or wrong or good and bad that isn't really useful. So it's probably better to say that when your needs are not met, it creates a whole series of unpleasant feelings or emotions like pain and sadness and grief. And when your needs are met, it creates a whole series of pleasant feelings and emotions like joy and love and connection. I think this is an important relationship between feelings and needs to keep in mind because it's actually really easy to focus on your unmet needs and the unpleasant emotions they are creating. And it's really easy to forget that when you are feeling great, when you are feeling joy, when you are feeling pleasant emotions, that that means there's some needs that are being met. And it's important to recognize and honor the needs that are being met so that you don't take them for granted. And that's basically where gratitude comes in. It's about connecting your pleasant feelings with the cause of their pleasantness, with the needs that are being met and what it is that is meeting those needs. You might be feeling amazing all the time because you have this really supportive family. But if you don't recognize that feeling amazing is connected to your really supportive family, you might leave your really supportive family and be like, I don't need them. I feel great all the time. And then all of a sudden you feel awful and you're like, why? And it's like, oh, right, because I was feeling great because my need for family, belonging, acceptance, love, connection was all being met by this specific situation. And when I left that situation, those needs were no longer being met. So I really need to understand and honor and care for those needs if I want to feel all of the pleasant emotions associated with those needs being met. Does that make any sense? <laughs> so once you start to understand what your needs are, 
you start to realize that basically all of our behavior, all of our actions, all of our goals are strategies to meet various needs. But not all strategies are created equal. Because our needs are kind of universal, they're not tied to any one strategy. So we may be banging away constantly at a bad strategy to meet a certain need without realizing that there are better strategies, there are many strategies. So in this hypothetical scenario of the wet toilet seat, I didn't actually go up and confront the person. In fact, I didn't even see them. But in this hypothetical scenario where I actually do confront them, it's clear that by confronting them, I am enacting a strategy to meet my needs for fairness and dignity by basically making this person feel bad or ensuring that they don't do the same thing in the future. However, there are many other strategies. One strategy, for example, is to just use a different toilet. Or there's the strategy of just cleaning it myself, which is actually the strategy I chose in that situation. Or there are probably numerous different strategies. You know, I could have gone to the person and started yelling. I could have yelled at everyone. Or I could have gotten a member of the hotel staff to come and clean it for me. I don't know. I'm not saying that these are better strategies. I'm just pointing out that there are multiple strategies once you recognize what the actual universal need is behind this specific incident. The final step of NVC has to do with when your strategy involves another person. It then becomes a process of making what Marshall calls a request. What's interesting about a request is that it has to be something that the person can answer no to. If it isn't, it is called a demand. A request has to be yes or no because the whole purpose of nonviolent communication beyond just connecting with people is to meet the needs of everyone. So if my goal is just to get my own needs met, Marshall would claim that that is not nonviolent communication. And it makes sense. I'm basically just manipulating people to get my way. I, I am dominating them. I am putting my needs above theirs, as if on a hierarchy. But if I really adhere to nonviolent communication, it means there is no hierarchy in which one person's needs get elevated above another's. Everyone's needs are equal because everyone is equal. So my strategies to get my needs met have to take into account the needs of everyone else. So when I make a request, I have to actually, in my heart, be ready to hear a yes or a no, and to be okay with that. Because I can always come up with a new strategy and make a new request. And the whole idea is that once we have connected to each other empathically, once we know how we are both feeling about the specific situation that we are in in that moment, which incidentally is basically identical to the authentic relating that I talked about in last week's episode, they are both really concerned with the aliveness that I talked about earlier. I'll talk more about that later. 
But once we have connected empathically in that moment, we then go into not just my needs, but their needs. And once I understand their needs, and once they understand my needs, we can actually come to some kind of strategy whereby both of our needs can be met at the same time. So going back to my ridiculous toilet seat example, I could have found the person and made a request to them that was something along the lines of, hey, the next time you use the toilet, would you be able to clean the toilet seat? Is that something that you can do? And then they would have said, no, I cannot meet that request because I didn't leave the toilet seat wet. The toilet seat left itself wet and I am not responsible for the toilet. I would have then probably apologized profusely, but anyway, at least that gives you an example of a request. I could have also gone to the hotel staff and made a request that they fix that toilet. And you can even use this whole process just on yourself. You can get clear on the difference between what you're observing and what you're interpreting. Then you can move into self-empathy. What am I feeling right now? And once you figure out what you're feeling, you can then find out what needs are behind those feelings, what, what unmet needs are creating these feelings. And once I figured that out, I can make a request to myself based on a strategy to meet those needs. I could request from myself that I go find a different washroom to use, for example. So at the core of this nonviolent communication paradigm, there are kind of three big intentions as I see it. The first one is to connect with people using empathy. The second is to try to meet everyone's needs. And the third is encapsulated in this word aliveness. People in NVC are always talking about what is alive in them or what is alive in you right now, which is basically just like what are you feeling right here and now, which is exactly what authentic relating games are trying to get us to become aware of and communicate to each other. The idea is that when we become aware of what we are feeling in the moment and we express it in real time, it creates this exciting kind of interconnected energy between you and whoever you're talking to in which anything can happen. It's almost like you're in a football game, a social football game, and you two are your own commentators in which you are commenting on and explaining exactly what the social dynamic between the two of you is experiencing in that moment. The players of this social game would be things like your emotions and your heartbeat and your body sensations and your thoughts. You might, you know, comment on the way your heart is elevating or you're starting to sweat a bit or you're getting excited or nervous or you're having this thought or that thought as if they are players in a football game making different plays. And in those moments where you really capture that aliveness, quote unquote, it really is exciting. I talked about it last week in the Authentic Relating episode. There's just this kind of like frenetic, magnetic energy that ripples between you and that other person or other people in which things are just do feel really alive. And it is sort of like meditating with other people. 
it's like everyone can see each other's thoughts because you're being so honest and candid and self-aware. And each thought that is being expressed or each feeling is having a ripple effect and is affecting the other thoughts and feelings that are being expressed, creating this like unity between you. It's, it's, it's almost like <laughs> – it really is like a, a form of sexual intercourse without the sex part. When you're having sex, like hopefully, there is this really strong moment-by-moment connection in which every touch and movement and vocalization has a pleasure effect that ripples between the two of you in real time. And you're kind of reacting off of each other to create this exciting experience. Well, aliveness is is just like that, but on a kind of feeling, emotional, intellectual level. And it really does feel like you are both or all, the whole group is kind of giving and taking and pushing and pulling, not not in a sexual way. I, I really want to <laughs> be clear on that. It does not have to be sexual. But it is that same level of connection and awareness moment to moment. And, it, and both of those experiences feel amazing and, and have this incredible sense of connection and belonging and excitement. And even, even, you know, it doesn't even have to be harmonious per se. You could be having a kind of argument in which both of you are really being honest about how upset you are. And there is still this really electric, alive feeling that you, you, you are both being super real. You're both being yourselves. You're both being completely authentic and honest. And it, it, it's just, it's such an interesting feeling. When I would have lunch between sessions at this nonviolent communication nine-day training, Sometimes we would really get into this kind of game of aliveness over the lunch table and you could really feel it spreading and growing. And then all of a sudden, someone would start talking about something that wasn't based on that very moment and you could feel the aliveness sort of ebb away. And you could actually feel everyone kind of lean back a bit in their seats and you could see the kind of color just drain a little bit out of the excitement of the moment. And it was such a subtle thing and people wouldn't even realize it. They would just start talking about, oh, this reminds me of that time when I did this. And before you know it, you know, you're having an interesting intellectual conversation about something, sure. But it doesn't have the moment by moment aliveness, that interplay, that interconnection, that's just gone. And you miss it. When things are alive, everyone at that lunch table almost becomes sharper in my eyes. Like I can, I, it's almost, it actually seems to me that this idea of aliveness that they're trying to meet in authentic relating and in NVC is a mental state that is not our default. It's like we go into a slightly hyper-aware state in which the faces of the people around me really do come into sharper focus and it magnetizes me and compels me to lean forward and really look in their eyes and really sense every little thing that is happening between me and them. It really is this heightened, almost mindful, interconnected, meditative, but yet full of interaction and talk and feeling and excitement kind of mental state. And it's such a delicate and interesting thing 
to try to cultivate. And I'm now getting better and better at bringing it out in people. When, when someone goes off on a tangent of, oh, yeah, like that reminds me of this thing from the past, I can then point out, oh, did you notice that those two people listening just leaned back in their seat? Did you notice that? What are you two people feeling? Are you feeling less connected because this story is about the past? And then once again, you can pick up that train of aliveness just by talking about the fact that the aliveness started to fade away. It's just about being really observant and honest in the moment. And it makes me realize that I have not been living my life with the goal of experiencing aliveness. With authentic relating and NVC, one of the main goals or one of the main assumptions is that life feels better when you are experiencing this sense of aliveness. It's exciting. It's it's alive. And it's heightened. It can be exhausting and it can be intense. It can have conflict. It can bring up lots of unpleasant emotions and crying and things that you're not used to sharing in front of other people. So I realized that I've been living most of my life with the goal of something more like harmony or comfort or ease. In any given situation, I was always trying to create a sense of just calm and safe. And in nonviolent communication, they have a saying for this. And that saying is, nice but dead. That's how I had been living my life. Nice but dead. And it was so true. I was like, wow, I am the nicest zombie you've ever met. I am just walking around with a customer service smile, trying to make everyone feel super just like, ease, comfort, harmony, no conflict here, but also no aliveness, no electricity, no excitement. So now that I've had a taste of this quote-unquote aliveness, and I understand what it is, and it's just such an interesting coincidence that I happened to do an authentic relating workshop and a nonviolent communication workshop back-to-back, Both of them giving me the message of, hey, you're not living for that feeling of aliveness. Now I get it. Now I understand what it feels like. And everywhere I go, I'm trying to remind myself to find it, to cultivate it, to to invite people into it so that we can all live our most alive lives.